Turn with me, if you will, to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We have been on this philosophical journey of sorts for a while now. The narrator of this book, who calls himself the preacher, is conducting a kind of experiment. He wants to see if satisfaction and meaning can be found apart from God. And that might seem like a very strange experiment. And I'm sure that it was a tall order for Solomon, who wrote this book, since he was a Hebrew man. And his heritage and identity were intrinsically linked to the God of the Bible. Nevertheless, he wants to know if satisfaction and meaning can be found apart from the Lord God. Can they be found in this realm that he describes as being under the sun? The world detached from heavenly things, this world as we know it, the material world that we can see and taste and touch and hear and experience with our senses. So how is this experiment working so far? We are almost finished with chapter 2. What kind of progress has the preacher made? Well, so far, not so good, right? The preacher uses a, a phrase again and again to describe kind of the end of all his journey as he comes. He'll try this path, and he'll try that path, and he'll try this way of man to see if it's, if it's satisfying or not. And the words that he uses to describe the results each time is vanity or striving after the wind. Man is inclined to believe that he can solve whatever, whatever problem is set before him. But now that the preacher is actually trying to put that theory to the test, now that he's trying to discern the answers to life's biggest questions and to do it on his own apart from God, he's not so sure if that's actually even possible. We've seen so far that apart from God, human wisdom is extremely limited and cannot answer life's great mysteries. More wisdom only leads to more sorrow because more wisdom gives us a greater awareness of how little we know about the universe and how few answers we have about life apart from God. Apart from God, pleasure is not the answer because it doesn't give any lasting joy. Laughter and wine and folly, these things only serve to distract us from the real questions that we need answers to. So pleasure is not the thing that gives us meaning and fulfillment. Apart from God, man's accomplishments seem hollow and temporary, even from a person like Solomon who accomplished so many great and amazing wonders. He has seen that labor doesn't produce permanent change. And all that we gain, we will one day lose when we die anyhow. The preacher's finding that every time he tries to take a path that leads him away from God, the questions that only God can answer only get louder and louder in his mind and keep him from peace and resolution. So he finds himself wanting to return to God. A strong possibility is beginning to, to emerge in the mind of the preacher. Perhaps these big questions about life can only be answered with God's help. Here's an interesting detail that you may or may not have noticed as we've worked through the first two chapters of Ecclesiastes. From the beginning of the book until now, God, the name of God, has hardly even been mentioned. So far, this has been, in many ways, an intellectual exercise apart from God. Of course, you and I have spoken about God as I've preached the meaning of these passages. We've been trying to set the context for the things we've been reading and looking at the results that the preacher runs into from a greater perspective, the greater perspective of all of God's Scripture. We understand that the words of Jesus are not the red letters in the Gospels, that every word that is revealed in this book are Jesus' words to us. So we've been thinking about God and talking about God, but if you just read the words of Ecclesiastes, the word God has only appeared once so far in the first two chapters. It's in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 13, where it said, And I applied my heart 
to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. God has designed man with a sense of wonder, with a curiosity about eternal things. So that questions like, why am I here? What is the point of life? How can I be fulfilled? In what ways does my life matter? These big picture questions will be begging for answers in the heart of man so long as he draws breath. He wants and longs for these things to be resolved. And I'm sure you've probably spent time thinking about the meaning of life and the greater purpose of your existence. The reason the preacher describes this task as an unhappy business is that these deep questions that seem so important to our hearts and minds cannot be answered on man's wisdom alone. Every attempt leaves him feeling unfulfilled and empty inside. But verse 24, where we've gotten to today, is going to mark a change of tone for the book of Ecclesiastes. As the preacher tries to seek answers in the world, in human existence, he keeps running into dead ends. And his repeated failures cause his mind to be drawn to heavenly things and the role that God might play in the meaning of life. And so we read in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, the last verses of chapter 2, verses 24 through 26. Solomon says, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from Him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases Him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner He has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. Though the whole premise of this experiment in Ecclesiastes is to find answers apart from God, there will be those brief interludes throughout this book where the despair of independent humanism drives the author back to God. From verse 24 through the end of chapter 3 then, the Solomon, the preacher of this book, will reflect greatly on God's involvement and how the presence of God changes the whole complexion of man's life on earth. The first verse of the passage makes a blanket statement about how we should view our time here on this planet. It says, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Does that phrase sound familiar to you? It's a phrase that is often borrowed from here in Ecclesiastes and then sometimes mixed together with a similar passage from Isaiah 22 to form up a popular secular saying, Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Have you heard that phrase before? That slogan has been the attitude of many a, a hedonistic person over the years. It essentially communicates to the world, you know what? Life is short. You're only here for a little while. Don't waste your days living like a square. Seize the day. You only live once. Live for the now. Get it while you can get it. Before you know it, you're going to be old, you're going to be wrinkled, you're going to die, and then you're going to regret not having squeezed all of the joy out of life. It's a common way to think, isn't it? A lot of people in our world ascribe to this way of thought, and it's a very common way to think if you don't believe in heaven. If you don't think that there is a God who transcends the material world 
and has put expectations and moral requirements on the people that he has created. It's a useful philosophy for those who think that there's nothing more to life than the amount of years you spent on this planet and then you end up in the grave. If that is true, then why not just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow, death, and then it's all over. So it's somewhat strange that this philosophy doesn't just get brief mention here in Ecclesiastes. If you were to read the whole book from beginning to end in one swoop, you'd notice this phrase or a variation of it shows up six more times throughout the book. On the back of your note sheet, I've listed the other passages of Scripture uh, that take some sort of form of this encouragement today to enjoy life that the preacher uses here. We're going to see that there are some interesting connections between those passages, connections that should help us make sense of what the preacher is communicating and how it might impact our view of the material life that we live here on earth, especially from those who trust the Lord and want to live a life that glorifies Him. So let's first address this theological dilemma that the passage presents to us. The philosophy of eat, drink, and be merry seems to declare that life is, in its essence, meaningless. So the best thing that we can hope to do is enjoy the ride until we find ourselves dead and in the grave. I hope that by now, as we've been working through Ecclesiastes and consider these big questions of life, I hope that by now you can see the emptiness in that way of living. There is no hope simply living for the moment. It gives in to pointlessness. It is essentially the way that your pet dog or your pet cat is living their lives right now. There's no greater extended eternity for them. They don't have God in mind. They're simply waking up in the morning hoping somebody that will pet them, somebody will feed them and water them. They might find something to distract them and entertain them throughout the day. That's how the beasts of the field live. Are we seriously going to consider that the meaning of life? To simply live and try to get as much laughter and, 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 and temporary distraction out of life as we possibly can? How vain is that? How is God supposed to be glorified when we put our focus on the created things and ignore the one who created them? That's the very essence of vanity, isn't it? To concern ourselves only with what is fleeting and sure to fade away at the expense of the eternal and the significant things of God? How can we seize the day when every passing moment is slipping through our fingers and we cannot grab hold of it or make it stop? Life just continues on. We have no control over time. Verse 26 is the key to understanding what the preacher is driving at here. So let's look at that verse again. He writes, For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is a vanity and a striving after the wind. In verse 26, you can see pretty clearly there that there are two different categories of people being described. The first category of people are those who please God. Now, none of us pleases God all the time. So what the preacher of Ecclesiastes is pointing out here is there are those who have God in mind, who desire to pursue the things of God, who care about what God cares about. And then there is a second group of people simply called sinners. Those who please God and desire to follow after His ways and those who are content to walk in sin. They don't have any thoughts towards God that are really that significant. They don't want God interfering with their life. 
They're not concerned about whether they're doing what is right by Him. They simply want to live their own life independent of this God who lives beyond the sun. Everybody on earth falls into one of these two categories, according to verse 26. But, but wait, you might say. Pastor, you preach almost every Sunday that we're all sinners, right? That we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. So isn't there just one category? Don't we all just fall into that second line, into the sinner's category? Even Ecclesiastes is going to go on to admit this in chapter 7. In chapter 7, verse 20, he says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. The Apostle Paul, in the book of Romans, this very famous section, chapter 3, where Paul is laying out the reality of sin to us and showing us how very, very critical it is that we know that we are sinners who are enemies to God, that we are born with this sinful nature. There's not one of us who has proven to be a righteous person apart from the grace of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul quotes Ecclesiastes 7.20. And then he even goes on to expand by including verses from the Psalms, which says not only are all of us sinners, but none of us even seeks after God. None of us even has a desire in our heart to turn from the wickedness that we're born with. We all want to do our own thing until the divine hand of God turns our eyes to Him, until He takes that heart of flesh that is so stubborn and obstinate to the ways of eternity, and He melts it, He softens it, and makes it a heart of flesh. We are so blessed to be able to come and worship a God who has presented to us gospel, which literally means good news. Because the bad news is that we're all sinners and that we all fall short of this divine glory that we are here to worship today. Not one of us deserves to praise His name. Not one of us deserves to be called after the name of Christ. And yet the gospel shows us that because of His incredible love for sinners like us, He has interrupted our stubbornness and He has turned us towards what is good and holy and pure. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, took on flesh and humbled Himself. He left the security and peace of heaven to come and dwell in a wicked place filled with wicked sinners like us. He, he took that upon himself because of his great care for what God has created. He came and dwelt among us and he lived as we lived, tempted but different. Because while we give in to our temptations, while we fall short of perfection, he never once conceded to the temptations of the enemy. He always stood firm he always did exactly what the Lord God called him to do. He was perfect not only in refraining from wickedness, but he was perfect in constantly living in love and truth, doing the things that God had called him to do. But this Son of God, Jesus Christ, did not come just to show us what we can accomplish. He came to take that perfect example of life as our spotless lamb, as our one perfect sacrifice, and to give that life on the cross to pay the penalty of our sins. So yes, we are all sinners. We all belong in the sinner category. But there is another category, this category of those who want to please God. Because those whom God has grabbed a hold of and turned their hearts to Him now desire to be something other than what they were naturally, naturally born as. They desire to be children of the Lord God. Through faith in Jesus Christ and the re repentance of sin, everyone who has trusted in the Lord God has been made new. They've been given a new lease on life, a, a different identity. And so there are rightfully two categories here today. There were two categories in the Old Testament as well, though they did not yet know that Christ was their sacrifice. 
Those in the Old Testament were also saved preemptively by the blood that He would shed on the cross for us and by His resurrection. Everybody falls into one of these two categories. So in creating these two categories, the preacher is telling us that we belong in one camp or the other. Those who resign themselves to being sinners and those who aim to please God even though they cannot do so perfectly. The, um, the first category are Lord over their own life. They are the master of their destiny. They choose for themselves how they want to live, what they want to do, and where they want to go. They have a sense of freedom from God, though it is not truly freedom. The second category, the category of believers, have been called out of the life of sin by God and have a desire now to serve Him as Lord, to honor His Word, and to walk in truth. To one of these two groups, God has given gifts, hasn't He? Verse 26, For to the one who pleases Him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. When we seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, this faithful and generous God will grant us the blessings of wisdom and knowledge and joy. We will be able to walk through life with big picture perspective. While man's wisdom falls short, God sees all. And by trusting Him and pursuing Him, we can see life in the context of God's greater perspective. The Word of God will become to us knowledge that we can not fathom apart from God's leading. Knowledge that is inaccessible to the intellectual mind of man who does not know God. Notice how much more substantial these gifts are. Wisdom and knowledge and joy. How much superior they are to the first blessings of eating and drinking and being merry. He has elevated the existence of the faithful so that we can be blessed by the baser blessings of food and sleep and drink and happiness, but we also get to partake of greater blessings and joy, the joy of knowledge of eternal things, the joy of being able to be in a right relationship with the Lord God, the joy of forgiveness and redemption. Because we have a sense of because we have a sense of purpose and, and meaning, and since we can trust that God knows all that we do not know, it will be possible for believers to experience a joy and a happiness that extends beyond the limits of this life. We know that God has prepared a place for those who love Him and are called after His name, and so our joy extends beyond the reaches and the confines of this world that we live in now. So to one of these two groups, God has given incredible gifts, and many of us here today rejoice in those gifts that He has given. But to one of these two groups, God has given not gifts, but a burden. Verse 26, but to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This is vanity and a striving after the wind. This vanity and the striving after wind is in reference to that second group that group that does not yet know the Lord God and is instead just gathering what it thinks will be blessings and security for itself from this world, all of which will turn out to be nothing but wind in the end. Those who try to find their own happiness apart from God's plan, those who think their greatest freedom is not with God, but away from Him, will find in the end the life that they have lived, gathering and collecting fleeting moments of happiness and small experiences of pleasure, will not result in any lasting contentment, but will instead result in striving after the wind. Their opposition to God's rule might seem like independence, 
but to the God who works all things to the good for those who love Him and are called according to His good purposes. Even the empty lives of the unfaithful will in some ways supply what the faithful need in this life. Let me show you an example of how that plays out. We see different examples of it in the Old Testament. When Judah, God's chosen people, who had been given a promised land and who had been given a covenant and who had been drawn near to the Lord God, refused to listen to Him and lived in obstinance to the Lord God, when they refused to listen to the prophets and instead persecuted them, when they began to adapt the ways of the world and worship foreign gods besides Yahweh, God raised up a foreign nation, a nation called Babylon, and a leader specifically named Nebuchadnezzar. God allowed this man who had not his hope in God to become strong and mighty. This general amassed a great and powerful army, an army that none of the other nations of the land could oppose. And the Babylonian nation became an empire as it began to express its power over the nations nearby it. One of those being Judah. Now this is hard to imagine, but listen close. In raising up a lost nation to be powerful, to conquer Judah, God was doing Judah a great service. If Judah continues on in their obstinance and in their sin, their relationship with God continues to suffer. But by humbling them and taking away from them the autonomy of a, a land that was their own, a political freedom that they had enjoyed for so long, by taking these things away from Judah, God wakes them up and helps them to understand their need to repent and to draw near to Him once again. And He used this secular group to accomplish that. So even as Babylon amassed and gathered to itself power and lands and resources, it was ultimately doing so for the benefit of God's holy and eternal people, Israel. We see this again in the example of Joseph. Joseph was a Jewish young man who lived in a family with many brothers. And he was favored by the father who uh, treated him specially. And God had given Joseph some visions which caused his brothers to be jealous of him. And you remember what they did? They sold Joseph off into slavery and pretended as if he had been killed by a wild beast. And so his father mourned his death, thinking that he was gone. But God was not done with Joseph. God brought Joseph to a land of people who did not worship Yahweh, to a land called Egypt. And there, though he had to spend many years as a slave, and then there, though he had to spend even many years in jail for crimes that he did not commit, God blessed the path of Joseph, and eventually he found himself in a position to serve in the government of Egypt in a position of influence and power. And what did God do to this pagan nation that did not honor him and worship him? God gave insight through Joseph that a famine was coming. And God allowed Joseph in his position of influence to amass great resources. So this secular lost nation, Egypt, became mighty and stored up food, enough food for years and years of use. And then when the famine hits the people of Egypt are sustained. But not only are they taken care of because of the blessing of Joseph and his wisdom, but the nations surrounding them are also able to come and partake of the food that they had stored up. And among those nations is who? Joseph's own family. The brothers who had sold him off into slavery come, not knowing that he is still alive, not knowing that he has risen to this position of authority, and Joseph is able to sustain them in a time of famine and keep them from starving because of the many things that the nation of Egypt had amassed and collected and gathered to themselves. God used that to the blessing of his chosen people, Israel. 
God knows how to take care of His own. So for all those who exist in the world, there is this common grace where God's day-to-day blessings can be experienced. You don't have to know God to know that a hamburger tastes delicious. You don't have to know God to enjoy a nice nap on a Friday afternoon. You can enjoy those basic things without even knowing God, but you'll never enjoy them to their fullness unless you know the one who gave the gift in the first place. So in order to properly enjoy life, friends, we must learn to put the pleasures of life in their proper place. The passing things of this life are not what we should live for. They are not the answer to these great questions that linger in Solomon's mind and even in our own hearts. Meaning is not found in the day-to-day blessings of eating and sleeping and enjoying life. When we see that, we can enjoy those things for what they are rather than lamenting over what they are not and what they cannot accomplish. If we're to enjoy the world without being caught up in it, which is what essentially we're being told here, that we can enjoy the things of this life, that we can enjoy the things of this world as long as they don't become for us our answer, our meaning, and our purpose. If we're to enjoy the world without being swept away with the current of it, then what are some practical instructions on how to do that? Thankfully, the book of Ecclesiastes gives us direction in that regard. As we consider how this general statement of mind is brought up some seven different times in the book of Ecclesiastes, we can start to identify two common threads that run through the majority of these passages which tell us to enjoy life. So if you flip your note sheet over, you can look at those passages right now. Let me point out the first one to you. It's highlighted in red. Wherever you see those passages, wherever you see red, It's pointing to this one common thread that's running throughout all of them. First of all, the preacher approaches the world with careful observation. He says, this I saw, when he's referring to the things of the world and how pleasure is to be enjoyed. In verse 12 of chapter 3, he says, this I perceived. In chapter 3, verse 22, he says, So I saw, and he he tells you what he saw after examining life. In verse 18 of chapter 5, he says, Behold what I have seen. In chapter 8, verse 15, I commend. That means having considered all of this information for himself, he can approve of this way of thinking. He's, he's, He's telling you what he has observed through careful thought and meditation. Chapter 11, verse 9, Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. You see this common thread? The principle that we see here at play in so many of these verses is that we are to enjoy the world not blindly, but reflectively. That we are to have our eyes wide open as we enjoy these blessings that God pours down upon us. That we should do them carefully and with a thoughtful mind and an attentive heart. In the book of Matthew, we see Jesus teaching to the the masses of people. And somebody asks him, Jesus, why do you insist on teaching so often in parables? Why do you teach in these stories? A parable is a short story, usually with one central theme uh, that has an analogy to it. You can see a greater, more important truth within this simple story that is very relatable and easy to connect to life. So he says, why, Jesus, do you teach in these parables? And Jesus tells us in Matthew 13 why he uses these parables. He says, This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing, they do not see. And hearing, they do not hear. Nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. 
that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. Think about that again. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear. With their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. The parables served an illustrative purpose. By preaching in these ways, Jesus was able to show who truly cared about the things of God, who was seriously honest about paying attention to what Jesus was preaching and who was just there for the show. Those who truly wanted to know the heart of God, when they heard a parable and they didn't understand, they would stick around. They would ask Jesus to explain it. They would seek the true wisdom of that parable, while others would simply just scratch their heads and walk away. Seeing they did not see, hearing they did not hear. The truth is right in front of them, but they refused to digest it. There was a chronic dullness of heart. The way that these people were living was in some ways like being on autopilot. They weren't critically thinking about what God might be doing through this Jesus whom he had sent. The hardness of their hearts had exempted them from real understanding. And so as we enjoy the things of this earth, notice the pattern that the preacher sets for us. He tells us to enjoy these things, but he also encourages us to do it very carefully with our eyes wide open, to think about what these things mean to us and also what they cannot mean to us. Christian, enjoy the life that God has given to you, but do so with your eyes wide open. Do it with a heart and a mind that constantly reflects on the things that God has shown you through His Word. This Word that directs you, this Word that guides you, this Word that corrects you, and this Word that protects you from the things of the world and from your own wandering heart. Whatever you would enjoy in this life, get in the habit of asking yourself this important diagnostic question. What does this possession, what does this achievement, what is this dream that I have, what is this relationship that I'm pursuing, what is this habit that I'm engaged in, what does this truly mean to me? How does it affect my spirit? How does it affect my closeness with Jesus Christ, my Redeemer? Does it mean more to me? than Jesus Christ does. The book of Ecclesiastes is designed in some way to stir up an uncomfortability in us. Because as we read through this book and we see these lanes that the preacher goes down trying to fulfill himself apart from God, we realize that we've walked some of those paths before. That there are different things maybe in our life today that we have been enjoying to a greater degree than we enjoy Jesus. There are things in our lives that God has given to us as gifts that are meant for our good, but we have, def we have deformed them into makeshift idols that we're counting on for our happiness and fulfillment. And the book of Ecclesiastes does an incredible diagnostic job of revealing them to us and encouraging us to deal with that. If we're going to enjoy the things of the world the way that God intends us to enjoy it in a way that honors Him, we cannot let any of those things become our meaning and our purpose and our true hope. Take caution. The reflective way of evaluating life has to go beyond your own intellect. All of our reflection must filter through the revelation 
of God's Word. It means when you want to know what a thing means, you can't just define it about how it makes you feel. You've got to go back to God's Scripture and say, how does this affect my holiness? How does it affect the, the commands that God has given to me to honor Him in a way that He has willed for me to honor Him? There are times when the world will present to you something on a platter that looks much like a blessing. And it might even be a blessing. But taking that blessing might mean compromising your closeness to the Lord God. In which case, what's got to give? You've got to turn that blessing away and trust that God is the greater blessing. I'm giving you an example of this. We've got a food pantry that meets on Saturdays here at the church. And it is a tremendous blessing to come and see that the Lord is using it to meet the needs of our neighbors. Every Saturday we give out food to about 50 to 60 families who are, are struggling right now or who just need some help to get through a tough season. And it is a blessing to come and watch God work. We've got partnerships um, through a, an organization called Feeding America that gives us access to free food from Costco, from Food Source in Pittsburgh, and from the Alameda and Solano County food banks. And so we don't even have to buy this food. We go and we pick it up, and we bring it in, we organize it, we keep it fresh, and then when the people come to get it, they get that food free of charge, and we have a lot to give to them. And that's a tremendous blessing. We had somebody come from the Feeding America organization and observe us a couple of weeks ago, and they gave me a call and said, Pastor Nick, we've got to talk. You guys aren't in compliance with our guidelines and rules. So you know, I, I'm always striving to do things the right way, so I said, I'd like to get together with you. Let's figure out what we can do. And one of their guidelines is that you cannot make somebody experience a religious service in order to get the food that you have to give to them. And so I was, I was a little bit concerned at first. I was thinking, we're probably going to have to drop this. We're probably going to have to stop receiving all this food from Feeding America, Costco, and Food Source, because what matters the most to us is the gospel. We want to meet the physical needs of the people, but the greater importance to us is being able to meet the spiritual needs that they have. And so when they come to receive food from us, we're also sharing a message from God's Word. We're also praying over them. We're also trying to engage with them on a personal level and ask them how we might direct them to Christ or counsel them through the hard things that they're going through. We're, we're constantly inviting them to come to church. So if I can't do that greater work, if I can't do gospel work, then I don't want that food. But it's sad to me how many churches would just say, well, if we can't get the food, then I guess we'll just stop praying. I guess we'll just not have any religious components. I guess we'll just do the food part of things. That's good enough, isn't it? It's good, but it's not what God has really called us as a church to be. Thankfully, we were able to talk and reorganize our schedule a little bit, and now we have our devotion and our prayer time starting this week up front. So if anybody doesn't want to come to that part, they can opt out of that. We do our sign-ups afterwards, so anybody who wants to come afterwards can sign up, and, and they don't have to be prayed for if they don't want to. Uh, but I can assure you that probably 95% of our constituents are going to want to be at that devotion because they've been blessed to hear the Word of God preached and to be connected to the body of Christ in that way. But we have to also always be diligent, friends, to, to, dis, to decipher whether these seeming blessings that come into our lives are truly blessings or if they are in disguise a way that the enemy is trying to pry us away from the Lord God. You get a new job and you're so excited about the increased salary and you got hours and this is wonderful until you find out that it's going to cause you to work every single Sunday and you're going to be completely detached from the people of God. What do you do? You know, I, I would encourage a believer to seriously consider what is the greater gift? The gift of a job or the God who gave the gift to you in closeness and celebration with Him 
You got to either find a, a church that has services on a day when you're not working, or maybe you, you got to stop and say, you know what, I'd rather keep looking for a job and work at a place that's going to detach me from the body of Christ and keep me from worshiping this Jesus to whom I owe everything. Not all things that appear to be blessings are blessings in reality. The reflective life, friends, is not an easy life. Ignorance does offer a form of bliss, but it's a destructive bliss. It is a poisonous ignorance. It is a bliss that will lead us into destructive paths. It's a, an ignorance that will hurt our relationship with the Lord God. So that's the first common denominator. As we read through those verses in Ecclesiastes that all tell us to enjoy life, they tell us, first of all, to do that with our eyes wide open, that we are to be observant. But the second thing we see there is highlighted in the color green. So if you see in those verses green over and over again, what you're seeing is that these things that we might enjoy are to be understood always as gifts from God. Not just gifts, but gifts from a benevolent, caring God who created us and sustains us. So in chapter 2.24, we read that these gifts are from the hand of God. In chapter 3.13, Read, this is God's gift to man. In 5.18, the toil that he's describing there is described as what God has given to him, the ability to work and to strive. In chapter 8, verse 15, God has given him under the sun. Chapter 9, verse 7, for God has already approved what you do. And what that means is that God's law has given us permission to enjoy many of life's blessings, such as eating and drinking and experiencing a loving marriage, things like that. So again and again and again, we see this phrase, as we saw in verse 24 and 25, this also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from Him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? This is such an important key concept to understanding what we're dealing with today. If the fundamental necessities of life are from the hand of God, then we should not look at the pleasures of, of this world as a, as a license to do whatever we want, but rather as a gift to be enjoyed according to the generosity of that gift giver. Sadly, there are, there are some Christians, fewer in the world today than there used to be, there are some Christians who believe that in order to be a truly holy man or woman, you've got to be miserable all the time. You cannot enjoy this life because if you do, it's somehow competing with Jesus and you should only get your joy from the Lord Jesus and not the things that he gives. There are those who would constantly strive to, to be the martyr, to be the one who is miserable, who doesn't have anything, who's giving whatever they have to others. Inevitably, that mindset makes you fall into that problem, that error that we described in the book of Galatians. Your salvation, your standing before the Lord God, stops being about the grace that he has given to you and begins to become about your willingness to suffer for him. Now, suffering for the Lord God is a reality for the Christian. But that doesn't mean that every minute of your life here on earth should be miserable. The Lord God desires for you to enjoy life. It is okay to have happiness here on earth, keeping in mind that it will never compare to the great glory of the happiness and joy that you'll have in the heavenly places. If the prospect of pleasure would lead you to violate the instructions that God has given to us in His Word, and that opportunity is not a gift from God. It is a trap from the enemy. There are things in our lives that we've likely called gifts from the Lord which are not gifts. And if we tell ourselves that surely they come from the Lord, we've, in a, in a sense, washed them in our minds, but that doesn't actually make them clean. There are things that would 
distract us from the Lord God, that would do us harm, that we're clinging to right now, that perhaps this passage in Ecclesiastes is encouraging us to let go of. But the opposite is also true, that the things that God has granted to His people are not to be seen as as a constant curse. If our mindset is on Christ, then these things that He has provided for us are a blessing, and we are allowed to enjoy them. Look at what the Apostle Paul says about this in 1 Corinthians 10. He says in verse 31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, see the parallel there? We see so many parallels between Ecclesiastes and 1 Corinthians. It's amazing to me. So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. There's no prohibition against enjoying things that you eat or drink there. There's no, disti- uh, there's no distinct command to suffer and suffer and suffer and, and forego all worldly pleasures. Instead, there's a command that if you're going to enjoy something, then you need to enjoy it to the glory of the Lord. On a very basic level, there's something we call common grace. You don't have to be a believer to enjoy those basic things of the world, to enjoy rest, to enjoy Laughter and fellowship and friendship. Common grace allows us to enjoy anything at all. If it wasn't for God, we would have nothing to rejoice over. There would be no existence. But on a more personal level, without peace with God, the enjoyable things of this world will not be as enjoyable as they should be. God is the true key to happiness. Dads, we gave out a book last week called Happiness by J.C. Ryle. And that's the driving point of that whole book, that you will find your greatest contentment and joy when you seek your happiness in Christ first. What are we to do with the material life that we live while we're here on earth? Christian, you're free to enjoy it. You're free to thank God for it. So long as it is lived in faith to the one who gave it to you and in accordance to the wisdom and knowledge and the joy that he has revealed. To trust in Jesus and to seek God's will is not to resign yourself to a joyless, ascetic existence. You don't have to be miserable to be holy. On the contrary, if you're pursuing holiness, then you'll experience a whole new level of joy that exceeds the hedonism of the world in amazing ways. But I will end with a caution here as we wrap up our time. Because man's heart has a way of taking God's good things and twisting them into bad things. I have no doubt that many who consider themselves believers have read God's word with one eye on Christ and the other other eye looking back over their shoulder at the way that they used to live life. And they come to a passage of scripture like this in Ecclesiastes or the similar passage in Isaiah 22 or later Ecclesiastes passages and they begin to see this verse as a license to do whatever they want to do. That heart that is prone to wonder comes across one of these passages and says, this is great. All that God really wants for me is happiness, so whatever makes me happy is what God wants for me. Be careful that the things which are lawful to you do not end up doing you great harm. Let me just show you how that works in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Turn to that last scripture as we conclude here. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Again, there are so many parallels between this New Testament book, which deals with the things of the mind and with the wisdom of man and its comparison to the wisdom of God, and this book of Ecclesiastes, which asks the tough questions about life and is really a a philosopher's journey through life that leads him eventually back to a faithful following of the Lord God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 
Verse 29, it says, This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they have none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. Now this is a very interesting passage of Scripture. I want to give you a little context into which it is set. In the earlier verses of chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is encouraging those in Corinth saying, listen, if you're strong enough to not get married and to live as a single person and to dedicate your life to the Lord from this day forward, then by all means do it. How amazing would it be to just live in this world fully committed to the things of God, fully free from the distractions of, of, of other responsibilities, just singularly thinking about the things of the Lord and giving yourself over to what He wants. That would be a tremendous blessing. But he goes on to say that not too many people are able to do that. We have desires. We want the, the companionship of marriage relationships. So he says there's nothing wrong with becoming married in a covenant way and honoring the Lord in that framework as well. But he goes on to describe here to us that because the Lord is the most important thing, because the, the days are coming very short, meaning that we know the Lord God is going to return for His church. So we should have this heavenward mindset every day that we live. Because of that, even those who are married should not be married the way that those in the world are married. We should not allow our spouse to become our obsession. We should not live in such a way that we're always thinking about our spouse at the detriment of the gospel. Love your spouse. Care for your spouse. But keep Christ first in your heart. So too, those who are tied up with the dealings of the world. Let's say you have a business in the world. He says you should live as if you don't have a business. What he means that by that is that if you're dealing with the world, don't live as those who are just wrapped up in the worldly things, that they're constantly thinking about money and the bottom line and expansion and, and, and having more clientele and selling more products. But rather... Think about that involvement with the world from a godly perspective, from one who has experienced the radical redemption that only comes through Jesus Christ. We're all going to experience mourning from time to time, right? But when Christ is the most important joy of our lives, then that mourning doesn't have to devastate us like it devastates so many in the world. My wife Missy is, is uh, waiting for her, her grandpa, uh, Bill, to pass away. He's in the last days of his life. He's 96 years old. He's been struggling. He's been having several seizures. He's had a couple strokes over the last couple years. And he's lived a long life of dedication to the Lord. And there's mourning in our family right now. This man's been the patriarch of this large family, so many of whom are believers, for years and years and years. And we're about to lose him. But not really. The mourning that we're experiencing right now is, is different than the way the world mourns. They posted a little video of, uh, of some time that the family was spending with him. His, sons and his, or his son and his daughters had gathered together and a few of the, the grandkids and they were sitting by his hospital bed there in his room singing praises to Jesus. They did that for three hours. Just singing praises to Jesus. Yeah, of course, there's heavy hearts in our family that it, it's not going to be too long and Bill's going to leave this place. But we don't mourn like the world mourns because we have a joy that gets beyond this world. It's beyond the sun. We can enjoy the fact that even when we struggle, 
even in our business dealings with others, even the relationship we build here on earth, the one primary thing that should matter most to us is Jesus Christ and Him glorified in our lives. And when that is made right, all the small things of the world are that much more enjoyable because you're not trying to make them what they don't deserve to be. You're not trying to get your true fulfillment from those things. Be willing to set aside any of the temporary blessings that God would give to you if they hinder you from the pursuing the greatest good that you could possibly pursue, and that's closeness with the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads as we pray together in conclusion? God, we thank you for your grace, and we ask, Lord, that as you have led us in your word today, Father, that you you'd use these things to encourage us, Lord God. There's probably somebody in here who feels really guilty about the, the fun thing that they enjoy. They're thinking, maybe I shouldn't enjoy that thing because it's, it's not a church activity or it's not explicitly commanded in Scripture. Father, if, if they're thinking that they need to, to cast that away just to impress you, Lord God, help them to see that if you are first in their lives, they have the freedom to enjoy that thing. If it doesn't violate the Scriptures, they have freedom to enjoy that thing, Lord God. Give them relief today. On the flip side, if there's anybody here who's been enjoying the things of the world to such a degree that they're encroaching upon their special time with you, if they are becoming more important and more primary to them than the gospel, then I pray, Lord God, that they would have the courage today to, to put those things in check and to reorder their lives that you might be primary. Lord God, there is a very important command given to us here that we are to enjoy the things of the world the right way. And we know that as sinful human beings, we often get that wrong. So please, Lord God, we beg of you, use the Holy Spirit that is within every believer to show us what we need to do. Help us to have the strength to follow through with these commands that you give. Lord, your word is beautiful to us. and We want your law to guide our steps and direct our paths. We are so very grateful that our performance is not the thing that has brought us near to you. Thank you for being perfect and for sending your perfect son to be our perfect sacrifice, Lord God that every failure that we might stumble into, every setback is already taken care of by his powerful victory. We love you, Lord God, and we want to enjoy you more than anything else in this world. But we're grateful also to enjoy the things you have given to us and to give you thanks for them. And so we thank you in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.